G'day guys, I'm Aaron Schultz and this is episode number 66 of the Outback Mind podcast. Thank you for joining in. Episode 66 has come around really quickly. Do we take our lives for granted? I reckon we do. We, we get stuck in all the negatives all the time and beat ourselves up. And yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing like depression and all the sort of things that go around it. And, uh, and you know, we, we sort of, it's funny as guys, we wake up some days and we just feel really low and, and so forth. And um, we've got we've to try and get ourselves up consistently and you know, I guess it's really hard sometimes with all the challenges and so forth in life to be uh, to be grateful. Um, now today's guest, uh, guest Jeff McEwen, uh, nearly died a few years ago. Um, had a heart attack and, and almost didn't make it. Was very very close. And he asked himself some questions: Did he love what he was doing? But you know, did he live? Has he lived his life? Did he love his life? And did he matter? Uh, and that send him on a, on a journey to try and make a, make a huge difference um, with what he could to try and help you, uh, humanity become more gratitude, empathetic, kind, grateful, all the good stuff um, that, that, we, that we sometimes miss out on because we're basically too, too miserable about worrying about all the things that don't really matter at the end of the day. And um, Jeff's on a real journey now to try and do what he can to try and improve the workplace to embrace well-being but also help um, uh, and do what he can with regards to studying neuroscience and giving people evidence on how the brain can change and so forth as well. It's a tricky thing because our, our mind will always take us back to feeling um, safe, secure and, and the negative mind always kicks in but once we know how to manage it a little bit better it, it can be something a bit more um, uh, that we can be a bit more aware of and we can actually start to self-regulate and become a little bit more aware of our thoughts, feelings and emotions. So Jeff's going to give us a really good uh, understanding of that today and his background and what he's gone through to be able to get to where he is now. So I'm sure you're going to take a lot from this conversation just about how good life actually is and we get stuck in the money and this we wish this, we wish that, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, I guess. So I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode. Just want to make special mention to our Primary partners, Green Nutritionals, Green Organic Superfoods, which help our mental health. So please check them out. If you're lacking something, their, their supplements are the best uh, organic and the best uh, quality anywhere in the world. They source uh, the, the best products that they possibly can. So I really encourage you to support them. Their uh, website is greennutritionals.com.au and also Pure Life Organic Bakery, who make organic sprouted breads, which are much better for our digestion and our mental health because when our digestion is working well, and mental health works better. If you could check out their website, please, uh, purelifebakery.com.au. Their breads are available all around Australia. Awesome, savoury and sweet breads. So uh, I'm sure you're going to love what they do. Alrighty, let's get Jeff on and get into this conversation. Jeff McKean, welcome to the Outback Mind podcast. Thanks, Aaron. Happy to be here, mate. Fantastic yeah. to be aboard. Oh, very grateful for you joining in, mate. I'm sure uh, there'll be plenty of people out there that we'll get a lot from from this uh, this conversation and, and your journey, mate, um, to be able to turn your life around like you have. But uh, also your, your your background and your upbringing, which is obviously in the bush and a bit similar to mine, and I suppose a lot of guys out there. Could you give us a bit of a snapshot shot of that? 
Yeah, I'll um, I'll just start with one thing that's always always funny because uh, my surname's spelt McKeon, K E O N, but everyone pronounces it McEwen <laughs> yeah. unless they hear it. But that goes back to I had a, a, an Irish grandfather, but an English grandmother. Oh. So the English grandmother hated the Irish so much that she made him say McKeon instead of McEwen. Right. It's only, only when we were doing family history that we found out about the, the way it's pronounced differently because of the English grandmother. Yeah. yeah, I think when my people arrived here, one went one way, one with the other. Some put an E on the end, some didn't, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's funny how it all sort of works out, mate. So, yeah, yeah interesting. I'm glad we weren't uh, – well, life was probably a bit easier back then, but uh, I would say easier, but uh, – simpler back then when you just had to worry about uh, surviving and not worrying about all the things we've got in modern life i suppose at the moment sort of thing but uh yeah it's been an interesting uh interesting journey mate so where were you brought up mate i um originally was born in sydney but we moved up to queensland when i was very young so we moved to a little place called Laidley, which is in between ipswich and toowoomba mm. so it's semi-rural but a lot of farm a, a, a lot of fruit and veg um so a really heavy farming area um, so that's where I grew up. I, I was there when I was about four. So most of my, I don't remember anything else from, from when I was a child before that. So, you know, growing up, um, my old man was a, was a bricklayer, um, but he was also an alcoholic. Mm. Um, and that, um, that had a pretty, pretty massive impact on my childhood, my brother and I, mm. uh, my older brother's about three years older and, um, we saw some things listen to things and and just experiencing stuff that you go i wish it wasn't like that but that was that was my my path i didn't have a choice it's just what i was on and, mm. you know i grew up thinking that going to the pub on a friday night in your pajamas to say good night to your dad was normal mm. Mm. and it wasn't until i was older that i went oh that's not normal but as a kid you don't know any different that's just your experience yeah um I thought all parents yelled at each other and screamed at each other, mm. you know. Um, I thought, you know, Friday nights was when your dad came home drunk from the pub and on Saturday mornings you went through his pockets to get some change because he was still hungover. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so that was fairly fairly normal in my childhood. But, you know, as you get older, you, you sort of you become a little bit more socially aware and you just start to question why is it like that. Mm. Um, you know, and, and he... Yeah, he, it was a problem for him. It was a, a massive impact on our family. And, you know, it's it's something that um, changed my childhood. But in a way that it, it, I think as I got older myself, I was, I was able to reflect on that rather than necessarily repeat it. Um, I had my own struggles and battles with, with alcohol, but it was in a different manner because I wasn't an angry drunk. Um, whereas my dad was very angry when he got drunk, very belligerent. The, the one saving grace, Aaron, this is probably the one thing that I have always been grateful for, um, was that he was a never a violent drunk. Mm. Um, that was the one, the one thing that, you know, I could hang on to. At least he didn't hit us. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, growing up in the 70s and the early 80s, I, I know of so many other people that, that you know, and, and today... Where violence is the, the dominant force, and that's that's frightening and sad. Yeah, yeah, it is, mate. It's interesting. What year were you born, Jeff? Mate, I was born in nineteen seventy. 
Yeah, you, you're, you're older than me. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, um, you know, like, like I was brought up around it too, mate. And um, my my dad drank, you know, a bit. Um, I grew up thinking drink driving was normal because I was always in the yeah, car when yeah. when that was going on. And you'd go somewhere, you'd yeah. drive home, there wouldn't be a problem, you know. And um, uh, dad was never violent. A little bit of arguing occasionally, but not nothing major. But um, uh, mum and dad drank, you know, every night, so I had, had a couple of bottles and that sort of thing. And, you know, dad yep. would have a few more on the weekend or he'd go to a do or whatever. And, um, yeah, you, you are, you are, but it is in, well, you say it's in your blood primarily. But, um, uh, you know, I, I got to a stage when I got to sort of 14, 15, thinking, which way do I go? I don't want to be like this. But uh, yep. everyone else was doing that, so I didn't have much choice, you know, living in the, uh, in the rural environment that I was in. Um and uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say I've had a boss, probably I've had a battle with it. Yeah, like I, I gave it away for a while and I have a beer occasionally now. I find it sort of, it is, uh, it is okay um, every now and then for me just to have one or two beers or whatever. I don't sort of, you know, have to rely on it too much. But um, I know back then they did, they just drank. And it's interesting with your dad, mate, he probably had a lot of trauma, which was making him behave that way, do you think? Oh, look, that's, as you get older, you reflect and you realise his own battle and, and this is, I guess where as you, you mature, your own empathy um, comes into play because he obviously struggled with his childhood. The language wasn't there to talk about it, you know, and, and so he didn't have the healing. He, you know, he never got the healing himself. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a great quote that um, I, I think I've, I've really hung on to and, and it's about a transitional, I think it's called transitional character, um, and it's about where you don't pass on the poison to your own children. Mm. Um, and it, that's one of those things that um, for me has been really powerful. Um, and I'll just read the, the quote. A transitional character is one who in a single generation changes the entire course of a lineage. Yep. The changes may be good oil but the most noteworthy examples are those individuals who grow up in abusive emotionally destructive environment and who somehow find a way to metabolize the poison and refuse to pass it on to their own children mm, they mm. break the mold yeah mate it makes so and much that, sense that, that's what i've lived I, I i you know i have teenage children now um, and I broke the mould of what I grew up in. I haven't, you know, I've made lots of mistakes, don't get me wrong, but, but I didn't take my children through that, that pain of what I, what I had to, to endure. Mm. Um, and, and like, I, I, I want to share a story because it's, it's, it's really, as an adult and you look back in these moments, it, it's quite frightening, but it, just to give perspective, um, we used to have big parties at our place. Dad was always the entertainer. He loved to, loved to chat, loved to laugh and loved to joke. But that was also, you know, the hiding behind all the other stuff that was going on. Mm. Um, but I remember some guy walking down down the hallway of our house because, you know, his wife was there and he didn't like the way she was talking to someone else. And so he went home and got a semi-automatic rifle. Mm. He walked through the house you know, in the 70s, we, us kids were there on the lounge doing whatever we did. And my dad and someone else stopped him. My dad ejected the bullet out of the rifle and dragged old mate down the hallway and then said to us kids, now I reckon I would have been about six at the time. And he said, kids, will you pick those bullets up? Shit. 
you know, and you just think about that could have gone so bad, mm. so wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, um, but that was some of the things that, you know, that went on and it went on at our house, you know. For some reason, we were the only house that I know in, in the in town I grew up that had a barbecue in the front yard. Because <laughs> my old man would say, well, if I'm having a barbecue, people will see me having a barbecue and they'll want to come over, you know. <laughs> yeah. the, the fact that he used he used to never mow the front lawn, you know, cobbler's kids go bare. So our house was falling down around it. Mm. Um, you know, things were always broken on it because it was, you know, but that was, he was too tired working and then he, then he, um, then he spent all his time drinking. So you know, is he to, still to alive? To cope with it, yeah. Is he... No, no, we lost him. We actually lost him this year. Mm. Um, we'd healed and, and we'd, we'd moved on with life, but there was, you know, there was time in my twenties. It was pretty tough. I, I didn't have a very good relationship with him. Mm. Uh, but then we then we healed that, and because I, as I grew and matured, Aaron, I was able to provide empathy mm. to him mm. and compassion to him. And I remember the first time in in my adult life that I said to my dad, "I love you," mm. and that was because he needed to hear it. Yeah, I he was sick. And I was in a good place in life. I was feeling, you know, I had empathy for him. And so I was able to tell him that because, you know, he was sick. He was, you know, we didn't know how long we'd have it. Now, he hung around for longer than we thought. But, um, you know, it was it was a sad passing because it was a closing of a chapter um, that had so much more potential. I think that was the thing, mm. you know. But unfortunately for him, alcohol was a... You know, a, a terrible influence on his life. Yeah, um, Jeez, mate. That's you know. Uh, sorry, uh, mate. It's so. Yeah, you're right. It's we we we, we don't know, but but you you're so lucky, and um, I guess I I am too to be able to sort of be aware of it, so you're not stuck because so many kids just become just like that, and and that 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 just yep. gets passed on and on and on, and I, I say quite often in this podcast, we've got the opportunity now to. Uh, change uh, the trauma that's been passed down from seven generations before us. So the next generations, the next seven yeah. generations can can be better and they can heal. You know, and uh, I just think we're 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 talking together for a reason because we want to try and do that to uh, to our you know to to our lineage and our kids to be able to make them better people so they can be better for their kids and beyond. Yeah, yeah, and that's that. And that's where the transitional character, where you, you don't, you know, you, you distill the poison. You're not passing the poison onto to your own kids. Mm. So, so fast forward to about 15, um, so I was about 15, so that was the mid-80s. Um, Dad had gone by then, was sort of in and out of our life, but, you know, life was pretty shitty. Um, life was pretty tough. Um, Mum was not in a good place. She wasn't doing very well. Um, you know, we financially it was terrible. You know, we, we were living on a back then a supporting parents' pension and we had nothing. You know, we it was really tough. You know, I, I hated getting in our car to go longer, um, for longer than half an hour because you weren't sure if the car could make it. Mm. Um, and I remember sitting down, I was 15 and I can picture, I can picture my room and Back in those days, it, it was a typewriter. I remember sitting down at 15 and typing out a suicide note to my mum. Because mm. I'd made the decision that the next day, I was gone. At 15, um, unbelievable. 
and I'd written it, I'd typed it out, and I remember crying as I'm typing it, trying to reread it again, but knowing that I had to get the message out. Of it. And, and I spoke recently about this, and it, it's probably the worst part about it, is you feel an instant relief when you write it out, mm. as you verbalise that you've put it out in writing. Um, and then, like, that was it. I was done. I was ready to go. Um, and the very next day, my best mate's mum literally said the words, are you okay? Mm. Which are uh, the day after school. So it was going to be that night. Um, the day after school, she, we'd gone to his place and she said, you don't look right. What's, what's wrong? And that was that moment of someone seeing me. And, you know, she just gave me the greatest hug. And that was the moment for me that saved my life. Mm, yeah, unreal. Now, the greatest thing is, is I've been able to publicly thank her. We were at a function one night and there was probably 100 people in the room. This was a few years back. Um, and I'd invited her along. And, and I hadn't told her about it. I hadn't told her the story completely. I, you know, I told her how much of a positive influence she was in my life. You know, and I, I call her mum to this day, you know, it's my best mate's mum. We've known each other for 45 plus years. Mm. Um, but I was able to publicly thank her in front of my peer group and thank her for changing my life. Mm. And, and Aaron, that, that was one of the most powerful moments in my life, to stand up in front of a, a, a crowded room and to, to thank her for making that difference. Mm. And I think about it now is imagine if she'd not said anything or just treated that day like any other day. Mm. Um, the whole world so that's why a different I'm, place, mate. You, you wouldn't be here and uh, a lot of people would have missed out on all the gifts that you've been able to, to, to give. You know, it's incredible, isn't it? That, that just that one, that one moment which, which yeah, we're, we're probably unconscious of all the compassion that's around us consistently, you know, because we are too much in our heads, but you needed yeah. it then and yeah. it, was, it arrived at the right time. Yeah, and I'll look, I'll be forever grateful for that that exact moment, you know. That, and they were family friends for a long time anyway, but it was that, that moment at the age of 15 that someone saw me and changed the direction of my life. Mm. Um, and that was, yeah, that was a pretty powerful moment. That, that's one of those ones. But, and, and I guess that's where I talk, you'll hear me talk, or anyone who knows me now, they hear me talk about legacy. I always talk about what's your legacy because you're writing it every day. Mm, mm, that's true. You have the ability to influence so many people in a positive way when you get out of your own head. Mm, that's um, true. We spend so much time in our own head and in our own thoughts, um, as opposed to no, no, we can just influence people um, by being kind and being positive. Mm. They may not be where we are. They may not be have reached that point on their their pathway or their journey. Um, but don't ever stop doing it just because they can't hear it yet. Mm. The high, they may the hear it one day. Oh, absolutely, mate. Well, well, we often talk about the higher levels of consciousness on this podcast, and there are two of them, you know. Um, yeah. And, yeah, we, we, we're so distracted by, by well, from that because of the, the, the grind or, you know, all the stimulation we have around us. But once you start getting back to that, Firstly, to yourself, be kind and, and compassionate to yourself, which is a hard thing to do for a man. But uh, yeah. uh, you know, being able to display it to others is something that we innately know. When we're kids, uh, we 
we, we innately know what it's like to be kind and to give and to share and all that sort of stuff. Um, the kid that doesn't share anything is the kid that, uh, the kid that gets scolded. That's what my mum used to say. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of adults don't, don't do that anymore. But imagine how great the world would be if we actually, like, did share our resources and did things together. And, you know, your dad was probably sharing by having the barbie at the front, but uh, was probably giving the, the wrong message too in a lot of ways. But certainly, um, you know, that, that, that's our innate human nature to, 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 to behave that way, you know. It's not meant to be greedy and, um, you know, fearful and, and, and all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, would you agree? Yeah, look, and, and, and ironically, and we'll get to it, what I do now, but the, um, the, the fight, flight or freeze mechanism is what triggers most behaviour and we don't educate people about it. Yeah, absolutely. Every human being is designed with the same DNA in regards to our our threat response. Um, but unless people have been educated on it, they don't understand why they're getting upset. Mm. The minute the minute they they trigger that awareness and they can see it's just a programming that's there in our brain that we all react fight, flight, or freeze. Ah. Mm. Oh, why am I getting upset over that? I don't need to. Mm. I've got a choice. Mm. And the minute you have that choice, um, and it's a, a, a quote from Viktor Frankl, between stimulus and response lies a space, and in that space lies our power. Mm-hmm. That's right. Absolutely. So, so when you, when you realise you don't have to react to all that stuff, that you actually have a choice, you suddenly go, oh, I don't need to worry about that or be concerned about that. Mm. But that takes awareness. Um, and our generation, Aaron, and a lot of people were never educated. The great thing is now, and, and having teenagers, is I'm seeing that um, a lot of educators, you know, school-aged kids, are get, getting taught about their fear response. Mm. They're being taught now about it because it's it's become wider known. But there's this whole generation of us that, that just haven't been taught. Yeah, that's so right. So unless we're out there trying to share the message, people people just we're still going to get angry. You know, um, for seemingly no real reason, that's the problem. You know, they're getting upset at all the wrong things. They're they're trying to keep us in that flight and fight so they can keep selling us things, Jeff. You know, at the end of the day. Yeah, I'll look at you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, that's a really good good segue to what I spent 25 years of my career doing. So fast forward, I managed to make it through high school, um, no real fixed plans, and I moved from the country into the city. You know, I had no idea what I was doing, but I just knew that that's where the work was. So I ended up starting work. The first, my first job was as a cleaner at David Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the greatest part about that job is like, we got the leftover food. So that was pretty good. I like being a, being a big country lad. I'm six foot two. I like to eat. So that was a really good job. Um, mm-hmm. And then my next job from that was, was working for Wallace Bishop. So a, a jewelry chain here in Brisbane. Um, fixing watches of all things. Now, I'm six foot two tall and I've got massive hands. <laughs> so I had to do this really fine, tiny little work with these huge hands. And it was the funniest thing watching me. Because, yeah, anyway. So I spent some years <laughs> doing that. And what I worked out is that I can sell. Now, the reason I can sell is, remember I touched on before, my dad liked to tell a story. And my dad was the storyteller and the joke teller. And always laugh. So that's the one thing I've got from him. I, 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 I'm happy to get up and tell a story, talk about anything, tell a joke, and try and make someone laugh. 
Um, and what that meant was I was really good at sales. Yeah. So then from working on fixing watches to then selling them. So then, um, you know, selling, selling, you know, any, any form of watch that, that they sold and, and having a great time of that. And then I saw an ad in the paper and the greatest thing at the time was that this ad in the paper said company car provided. And I went, oh, that's what I need because my car's just broken down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so then I started in the motor industry. So mid-90s in the motor industry um, and I had no idea what I was doing but I knew I could talk and so I started selling cars. Mm. Um, so I did that for about 25 years and made a career out of it. You know, I, I went through various different roles and ended up um, working for a Toyota dealership here in Brisbane um, as a fleet manager, so looking after business to business, um, dealing with companies. Mm. Um, and that's where I really started focusing it as a manager on my personal brand and success. Um, so then I started thinking right about I need to look after people how do I develop people how do I influence them in a positive way to look for you know what we're doing so we ended up in, in my team we ended up doing things like we'd, we'd have our Monday meet, meeting which would you know traditionally were a sales meeting and a, a pep talk but we'd be talking about what are you grateful for yeah right my team my team would always I would always talk so you know what are you grateful for you know, and, and just getting them to have those human conversations. And I would always say that to my team, if I point a finger at you, I've failed. Because mm. if I'm saying you've done wrong, it means I haven't taught you right. Mm. Mm. Uh, and that was a big change. It was a removal of ego, which is something I had to do. Because when you're a salesperson and you, you're really good, you think you're the best in the world mm, yeah. and your ego's according. Yes. And then I stepped into the management role and then realised I know nothing here. I need to relearn. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was 25 years of, of selling, selling cars, bits of tin and metal, lots of shiny stuff to people. Um, and that gave me a, a great set of skills as an effective communicator. Um, but it reached the point where... The, the way the world is moving and, and that industry um, no longer aligned with who I was. Mm. Um, and, I'll, and I'll get to something later about that, but it, it just was no longer aligning. So I was fighting against an industry a little from within, a little bit like the taxi industry. Mm. You know, when Uber came along, the taxi industry fought against it and fought against it because it was change. Yeah. Um, and that's where the motor industry is now. It, the consumer process is far more advanced now, uh, but that industry is still, still um, a lot of its principles and practices are, are quite old-fashioned. Mm. Um, and they're not customer-centric, no matter what they're trying. They're still so far removed. Yeah, interesting. Um, interesting. Now, I will say, though, it allowed me to make a great income and a great living for my family. So you've got to balance up what... You know, it's good and bad. You know, like like I talked about, my old man was a bricklayer, um, and that was to make a living for his family. So I was a car salesman because I could could um, I could sell. I could talk to anyone. So that that allowed me that skill to translate. Um, but also, it was a conversation with my mum, who said to me, "If you pick up a trowel, I'll kill you." <laughs> now, you know, <laughs> that was in my teenage years. So I sort of listened to that threat from my mum because I was living with her at the time. So, you know, she never wanted me to follow. 
yeah. following that, that that trade, you know. Um, I don't know if she ever agreed on whether it's selling cars was what I should be doing, but it didn't didn't really matter. I just it was the job I did, you know. Yes. Yeah, um, amazing, mate. It's it's very similar to to me. I I sort of was in that sales mode, and I'll, I'm a good talker too, and all that as well. I've changed a lot. Was coming to me over over your conversation here, like how much I've actually changed over the last sort of five ten years with regards to um, you know that that overconfidence, which was probably masking a lot of the underconfidence. Um, you know, yeah. a lot of the wounding that had had been done underneath that I was masking by making myself look like I was jovial and so forth as well, I guess, yeah. Yes, yes. And and look, that was for me, um, you know, and, and I'll, um, my wife called me out on something. Um, our daughter was very young, so I've got a, uh, a, a boy and a girl and our son was about two and our daughter had just been born. And she said, is this going to continue? And that was when I questioned my relationship with alcohol. And that's when I realized, oh, I had a coping problem mm. and alcohol was my crutch. Yeah. The big difference between my dad and I is that I didn't get angry. I, just, I was a happy drunk. But the biggest thing, I didn't allow it to cloud my decision-making judgment um, the, rest of the, the rest of the time. You know, so it was one of those things I did battle with for a while. Yeah. Um, but the big the big change came for me as a parent, uh, and it was the, it was it was a really great thing from my son. And um, he was about uh, he was about nine or ten, something around that. So he's fifteen. You're just about to go sixteen now. Um, and I said to him, oh, I'm, I'm I'm working really hard on this big project at dad, at work, son, and and dad won't be able to come home as often. Um, because I'm going to have to work late. Mm. And he burst into tears yeah. and just said to me, but Dad, I just want you to come home and play cricket in the backyard with me. Mm. Aaron, yeah. that was a life-changing moment. Right. If I'd missed that moment and ignored my son, our relationship would have gone off the rails. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what I did... Yeah. It set an alarm in my phone and I at quarter to five every afternoon and I said to him, if I can make it home, I'll send your mother a message so you know I'm on the way. If I can't make it, I'll also send you a message so you know I'm on the way. Mm. And what I then did was I changed the way I worked. Um, I'd bring the laptop home and after the kids went to sleep, then I'd do an hour at night, you know, maybe two hours at night. So... You know, starting to work from home, but, you know, respecting my son, that that's what he wanted his dad for. He just wanted this kid to play in the backyard with him. You know, sorry, he just wanted his dad to play in the backyard with him. Um, yeah, and that was an alarm I had in my phone for years, like for, I reckon, three, four years. Um, you know, now I am a cricket coach and, and he plays, still plays cricket, but that means quite often that Saturdays and Sundays now. So it's changed a bit. <laughs> yeah. There's even more cricket now. Yeah. But it was that moment. And, and as, as a guy, it, I, could have, I could have ruined that moment and ruined my relationship with my son. Mm. Oh, mate, it's incredible. Um, I, I have the same thing uh I, I was going away from work uh, from home a lot i was flying into state uh, doing all that i remember one day my my son he was probably nine at the time and 
he just looked so deflated and I just didn't know what to say and I went off to, to Mount Isa or something. I was living in Tassie and uh, yeah. So my, my, my relationship with my oldest son really changed um, around that time, you know, and he sort of withdrew quite a bit and he was such a bright, bubbly kid and, you know, I got him into sport, into oh, cricket and all that um, like, like later on uh, and he... Um, he was very, very uh, good at his sport as well, but uh, at the same time, uh, you know, we I just missed missed a lot of their, their 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 childhood because I was at work a lot as well, you know, and um, it was so tough. Uh, but at the at that at that that moment, it didn't really matter. I was the breadwinner, and I had to make money, and I was doing what I could to uh, to to do it well, you know. And the more money I bought at home, I. The, the more successful I looked on the outside, but in inside I was probably, you know, quite miserable. Yeah, yeah. And that was the moment that it changed changed me um, as a dad and a husband, but it also changed me as, as a boss because then I, I you know, I, I reviewed the way I was approaching things and went, okay, I need to be more empathetic to, to the people around me. Um, and then I was able to prove it with performance because our performance started going up. Um, leaps and bounds because we I changed the way we were yeah. we were you know as a team we were working together you know um, and really looking at it from a, a mindful approach to work um, trying to help people um, you know in, in a, a situation one of the one of the simplest things to do um, is when someone comes to you and says I've got to go I've got an appointment to go to the doctor or whatever sure that's it they're adults. You know, but some some employers go, well, what time are you going to be back? How long are you going to be? Blah, blah, all that stuff. And it's like, no, no, just treat them like an adult. They've got adult things they have to do. Mm, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. sometimes we, we, we put them in there and we, we think they're all battery hens and they've just got to be lined up in rows. But, yeah. but it's not like that, you know. So then this is where I started fighting against the system I was working in. And I knew that the one thing I had to do was better educate myself. So then I started reading and, and reading and reading and reading. I remember I, I downloaded a document on the 15th of September 2015 because I've looked at it a couple of times. And I just started creating this file with all these documents to read. And I just started reading and changing what I was reading, mm. you know, and started putting more and more in. Mm. Um, and that's when I started developing as a, as a person and as a leader because I was putting in this education, you know, I was consuming um, podcasts like we're, we're on now, talking about education, talking about leadership, talking about, you know, um, well-being and, and, and mental awareness and all of those things. So it was this gradual process of increasing what my influence was or influences were on me. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's when I started talking about legacy and... and um, so I was, I was always about, yeah, I was starting to question my legacy and, and people's legacy. So then I'll fast forward to to um, the 17th of February, 2019. Um, so that was a Sunday. Um, and that was the day I survived a heart attack. So I'm pretty clear on my memory on that day because it stuck yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. But... Um, give you a background before that. Um, so that I was 49. Um, I was fit. I was training for a, 
a charity bike ride that, that I do every couple of years. We were riding from Townsville to Brisbane. Um, it's an organisation called Smiling for Smitty, and um, they raise money for cancer research for the Marta Foundation. Mm. So we, I was training for uh, 1,600 Ks in eight days, so we averaged about 200 Ks a day. Mm. Um, so I was fit. I was he- healthy, uh, according to me. You know, and if you looked at me, um, you know, six foot two, 90 kilos, and physically active almost every day of the week. Um, so anyway, it was a Sunday afternoon. My wife had gone down the down the street to get some steak for a barbecue. Um, the there was beer in the fridge, and I remember the day that the because the um, cricket T Twenty, the Big Bash final, was on that day. My son was on the on the couch watching that. And I'm about two o'clock in the afternoon, mm. and um, I got ready, went to go for a ride, jumped on the bike, and started pedalling down the road. Um, and I knew straight away that something wasn't right. I had no energy. I had no power. And I just, I reckon a grandma with a bike with a basket on the front could have ridden <laughs> past me. <laughs> um, and I had then this really strange chest pain that went laterally across my chest that I'd never felt before. So I couldn't pedal. I had this chest pain. And I went about a kilometre down the road and deep in my mind, I heard, and here's the value of podcast. I'd listened to a, a recording of a podcast of a guy in Melbourne. Um, he was an AFL um, doctor for Geelong, mm-hmm. and he had a massive cardiac arrest on the field at Etihad prior to a game. Um, and they revived him, and he spoke about the day before he was jogging and he couldn't jog because he had no power mm. and he just put it down to, oh, I'd been wor- overworked and, you know, had the flu or something like that. Mm. And that was the warning sign. And now that came out of my memory and I, I'm on my bike going, oh, I think I'm having a heart attack. Yes. It was literally that thought. Oh, I think this could be a heart attack. So I turned around and started rolling down the hill because it's a sort of a gentle hill back to my place. And that was when uh, it was something that I'd read and, and that moment. And I literally asked myself a series of questions, you know, did I love, did I live, did I matter? Would my kids be okay? Would my wife be okay? And would I be missed? Mm. And I was able to answer yes to all of them. And that was this relief, Aaron. Mm. And I went, okay, well, whatever happens here, I'll be okay. Mm. You know, my family is, is, is my, my family is surrounded in love. Everything is okay. If something was to happen to me right now, I've, you know, I've done all the right things as a, as a, as a husband, as a person, as, as a, as a father. I've set them up for their future. They're, 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 beautiful couple of kids and, and they'll be okay. And so that, it was almost like a, a letting go and saying, oh, righto, I just need to get home now, which, like I said, it's only about a kilometre, and it was downhill, so it was really easy. Mm. I rode, rolled in and um, I get on the phone to Triple O and <laughs> I ring the lady and she's saying, now, um, what's your symptoms? And I, I rattled them off and I went through, because my wife's a theatre nurse, so it's all about data. Um, 
you know, and I went through my, my heart rate, this, my blood pressure, we've got a blood pressure machine, my blood pressure's this, um, I've got this, my pain threshold's that, and it's about a three out of 10, my respiration's this. And she said to me, you're very calm. And I went, well, if I am having a heart attack, shouldn't I be very calm? Mm. Mm. Rather than running around going, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack, I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> That's true, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the greatest yeah. thing was my son. When I walked in and, and he, he said, oh, you haven't been, you haven't gone far. And I went, no, I'm just going to make a phone call. I'm going to ring your mum and then I'm going to ring the ambulance because um, I think I'm having a heart attack. And a 13-year-old boy looked at me and said, it's all right, Dad, the cricket's on, I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I've passed the family family line on of, of sarcasm and humour. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. that's, you know, that's continued. Yeah. yeah, that's a good thing. So anyway, um, I said to him, I said, you don't need lights and sirens, but I know I need to go and get checked out. Um, so off we go to the hospital uh, and turned out it was a mild heart attack, but it was a precursor and if I'd ignored it, um, I had a 95% blockage um, of one artery, just one single artery feeding my heart because um, the rest of my markers are fine. My, you know, my cholesterol was fine. Everything else was good, mm. but it was just this one particular um, artery leading, leading to the muscle of the heart. So the way I look at it, it, it's just like a dirty fuel line in a car. I literally just had a bit of, bit of crap in there. Um, I got a single stent and I was out of hospital in three days. Mm, lucky. Very lucky because I listened to my body. Um, six months later, so in August of that year, I completed that bike ride. So I went and did the 1600 Ks. Mm, unreal, um, unreal. I got a full medical clearance and, and you know, the... The doc said, if, if we didn't know you had a heart attack, there's no way of knowing apart from you got a stent in there, you know. Mm. Um, but the thing, Aaron, this is the message I talked to, and, and, and it's not just blokes, it's men and women. Once we once you reach about 40, um, you have to pay attention to the, the warning signs on your body. You have to listen. The only warning sign I had, and keep in mind I was quite active and fit, was I was mildly dizzy. Mm. And that was it. I wasn't nauseous, I wasn't weak, I didn't have anything else, but I had, and it was only upon reflection, I went, oh, that's why I was dizzy. Mm. You know, if I'd bend over to put the shoes on or something like that, I'd stand up and I'd get a little bit dizzy. It's like, oh, well, maybe I'm, because I was training, I was doing a lot of exercise at that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'd done a resistance session, um, you know, this was the two days before my heart attack, so, you know, think about this, I did a resistance session Climbing up here in Brisbane, it's called Mount Cutha, just near the city. It's about 250 metres high. It's a two-kilometre climb, 2.2k climb. I did that three times um, wearing a 15-kilo backpack. <laughs> yeah, make that uh, sense for me, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because that's from a training regime. You know, you, yeah. you want to push yourself and then you have a week. You do a hard session and then you have a week of easy. And so I was. that was two days before my heart attack. So if, if it had happened while I was it just... Anyway... So that's why, um, and then when you talk about legacy, that's why I talk so much about legacy because um, you're writing it every day. What are you going to leave behind? It's not. I'm not talking about money either. This has got nothing to do with money, Aaron. It's got to do with how do you positively impact the people around you? Yeah, that's right. How do you raise people up? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, that's true. People get to positions of power and they want to pull people down. Like, I, I don't understand that. 
doesn't make no, sense. Oh, well, that's the way we've been been conditioned. Uh, you know, yep. it's all about reaching a status and then controlling and that that's success. But really, success isn't like that at all. Success is empowering other people and giving people support and courage and guidance and compassion and all the yep. things that actually help them feel human. I guess the money, all that sort of stuff, it's just it's superficial. That, that, that doesn't last and... Uh, you know, you can you can make all the money at the sun, but at the end of the day, if you haven't got a smile on your face before you 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 uh, exit, then you know yeah. it's it's pointless. I guess if you've got people around you that uh, you've been able to uh, help inspire and encourage to do the things that um, that uh, supported them, then you know that that's humanity. I guess in its essence, the uh, the, the the material world is is not of this world, Jeff. It's really not as is stress. No, stress no. stress is not of this world. It's a byproduct of the mind. It's not something. And that's that, where yeah, we're here to do. Yeah, go ahead. Working working in the motor industry, um, I realised I was no, I wasn't aligned with who I was. Mm. So I have a heart attack in February. In August, I go and do that that bike ride. And I, by this stage now, I've started doing a, 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 an advanced diploma of neuroscience and leadership. So this is, I've started studying, grown up studying, as I like to call it. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and reading books, consuming information and content every single day. So I get back from the bike ride. Um, I then, and it's very clear, Melbourne Cup Day 2019. I walked into my then boss and said, I'd like to run a program with our staff talking about mental health, talking about how to better cope with stress and anxiety anxiety in the workplace. Um, um, it'll take about five minutes per person. I can do it as a small group uh, and just run it through the company and it's no charge. It's what I'm studying at the moment. And I was told, who are you? You're not qualified. If you talk about anxiety, you're going to increase their anxiety. How dare you get out of my office, go back and do your job. Are you serious? Yeah. Slightly different words to that. Mm. So I, that was the day I wrote my resignation. Um, I had, I was in the middle of a massive contract and I came home to my wife and said, I'm going to make a choice and we're going to talk about it. Do I take the money from them? Or do I walk now? And so we sat down and we had a discussion. Um, and she said, well, no, you've worked so hard. They will love that you don't, that they didn't have to give you the money for that contract. Because mm. uh, it's a motor industry. They, they had no obligation. Yeah. So I, I decided that I would fulfill that part of that contract, which was worth money to my family, because um, we were going on a trip to Europe. So then you fast forward, I, here I am, I've worked out, my wife and I have set up an exit strategy, uh, and then COVID came along. Mm. And so I just walked out, I, it was ironic, I walked out when we went into COVID shutdown, and I said, that's it, I'm finished, I've had enough, I'm going. Um, but the funniest thing, I'd been in the company for about 11 years, um, and there, there are a lot of people upset that I was leaving. But it was right in the middle of the week of the COVID shutdown. So there, no one could give you a hug goodbye. <laughs> no one could give you a handshake or, you know, nothing like that at all. We couldn't go out for lunch. We couldn't do any of those things, you know, when, when you've been in a company for, for a while. Mm. And, um, but because I was so self-aware, it was actually a really good moment to go, okay, but I'm fine. I don't need, you know. Other people would have, would have been really upsetting. It would have been almost traumatic to have to walk out. Yeah. 
Um, so then when COVID happened, that just accelerated my breeding and, and I started um, coaching. So I went into um, lifestyle coaching, um, working for myself, just helping people with what I'd learned um, and my experiences and particularly what I was studying. So the advanced diploma of, of neuroscience and leadership through neuro capability is it's 18 months and it's like it just changed my life. Mm. Mm. So then... You know, this is the space I'm in. I'm into well-being, mental health, prevention, you know, um, getting people to reach their potential, mm. um, choosing positivity as a, not denying your emotions, but as a as a choice so that, you know, you still have to process your emotions, but, but choosing to be positive rather than living in the negative. Mm. Um, and then you fast forward to this year. And I get a phone call from the company I'd done my training with, so Neuro Capability. Um, and they said, we want you to come and work for us. Okay. We can't think of anyone better suited to talk about our product. It changed your life. It changed your career and your passion for helping and helping others and increase psychological safety in the workplace is exactly what our business needs. Mm. Unbelievable. So now, now I get to talk to people all around the world, Aaron, about mental health, about psychological safety in the workplace, about how we can improve it. And it's, it's like COVID was the wave or that what caused the wave. We're now on this wave of businesses that either do or don't. And there's a massive divide happening right now. Mm. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. Even, even, even the word psychological safety two years ago, you couldn't mention it because no one wanted to talk about that. Oh, right, that's, you know, two years, COVID completely changed. There are so many more businesses focusing on the well-being of their staff. Um, but sadly, there are still so many businesses in the old world. Yeah. Oh, but mate, um, trust, trust me, that, that, that's my real passion, uh, workplace well-being. I believe the workplace has got such a tremendous role, responsibility, opportunity to be able to leave their employees better than what they were when they found them and uh, to be able to give them the uh, the love and compassion and sharing and all the good stuff while they're there rather than just use them as a commodity. And I've just come out of a government role, mate, and it was absolutely disgraceful with regards to the way that they that they treat their people and exit their people. And uh, my contract ended, but it was it was nothing about all the good work that had happened. I've worked in mental health up here. And um, yeah, yeah I, I know so much better because I, I've seen things from a, from a different perspective. And um, I actually felt compassion for the CEO and for the organisation that they haven't embraced this yet because they're so far behind. Yes, yeah. And that's what it feels like when you have an organisation, you go, oh, you don't, you don't get this. Yeah. Oh, wow. And you, and you feel it's, it, it, you have empathy, but you almost feel sorry for them because you go, oh, oh, that's, oh, oh you really, you're doing it the old way. Yeah. Oh, no, you know, there is a better way of doing this. Yeah. Um, and it's based on us being human beings. I mean, a business is a collection of human beings. You know, mm, that's right. no matter how much we want to talk about it, it's about making money. It's not. It's a, so that's why there's there's amazing businesses in you know that are, are driven by a cause as opposed to making money. Yeah. Making money is the byproduct of your cause. Oh. You get your cause right and, and what you're doing. The money just happens because of the the, the 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 reason why that business exists. 
Yeah, you're doing um, it well. But see, a lot of these uh, organisations are just chasing grants, chasing grants, chasing grants, and they've lost focus of why they're doing it in the first place, you know, to actually try and improve people's mental health. But it, the, 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 the ball isn't in the same court anymore, you know. It's, it's about getting admin right first and then the delivery second, whereas it should be the delivery and then the admin supports that and, and the people that are doing the work need that support. You know, I never had one debriefing the whole time I was there. Um, never any how are you conversations, any of that sort of stuff, you know, which is really, really poor. And uh, an organisation like, like the one you were working for, you're talking about what are you grateful for? That should be mandatory um, and not forced, you know. You, you should just talk about the things that are going on in your life uh, and be able to be open and honest, uh, honest about that and feel supported in the workplace because if you do feel supported and you feel safe, that is psychological safety in its essence, you know. And if you can feel safe in the workplace and you, you can prosper, when, if you're fearful like most people are in the workplace because they're worried about losing their jobs or whatever, they can't perform really, really well. Would you agree? Yeah. So, and so that's one of those things like that with what I do now. That, so neuro capability is the training side of it, but we also have another uh, side of it, conductor software, which actually runs a program where they can measure psychological safety in a workplace. Right. Mm, and then link that to the key KPIs that the business wants and tell them how much money they'll make if they make their staff happier. Yeah. And I don't mean happy as in happy, just safer. So that psychological safety is not about free lunches and beanbags. Yeah. Um, it's safe to speak up. You know, am I safe to, to make a mistake? Um, am I safe to be seen and heard? Because in some organisations, you, your voice is, is not heard at all. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I agree. And that was with me with the motor industry. You know, the, the, um, the, the role between a good leader and a bad leader is, is you know, is so far different. Um, and, you know, it, uh, that's why I had to do what I needed to do. And, I, and I'm a big believer in that you, you have to go and chase something and you have to listen to your instincts. So one of the things, society wants us to buy stuff because that's what the advertisers sell us um, and that keeps everything flowing. Mm. Um, but you have to sometimes ignore all of that and just listen to your instinct of what you actually want to do. Yeah. A couple of times in my life I've, I've, I've managed to listen to that instinct and I think that's enhanced my life. Um, that's why I do what I do now and I'm so I, I have this conversation with people all around the world um, like in this, this week I've spoken to people in London um, in in just outside Paris someone in Germany someone in Croatia um, you know uh, everywhere right it's just this is now psychological safety and training to improve people's mental well-being is such a huge focus now yeah, um, yeah. Oh, it's so good to hear, Jeff. It really is, and and your your organisation is at the forefront of that. And, and I believe there's so many others that could benefit from it. Um, we've still got a long way to go, mind you. Like mental health talked about consistently, but it's actually like talking the talk and walking the walk and embracing it and doing yes. it well and, and caring about your people and doing those things that actually like really support them and. Once you can do that, it's a bit like Richmond Football Club. They, they turned the corner in 2015 oh. and they've won three premierships since because they actually started giving a shit about the people rather than the, 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 the on-field stuff. And that, that so there's, a, there's um, a, a great book. There's two great books. I, so I'm a book reader. I love books. But COVID was great for me because I, I reckon I got through about 70 books <laughs> yeah. um, in the last 12 months. Um, but the... Um, Deep Fearless, 
which is um, the psychologist who was actually involved with Richmond and the AFL. Mm. Um, and then the other one's yellow and black, where they go in behind the scenes and talk about what actually happened. Okay. Um, but Damien Hardwick used the three H's. So tell us about a hardship. Tell us about a hero. Yeah. Um, I forget what the third one was. Highlight. Um, a highlight, that's it, yeah. 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 And what a beautiful thing, because these guys, the toughest footballers in the country, struggled to get up in front of their peer group and talk. Mm. Mm. By the end of it, they were all, you know, they were all clear on mission. They'd all shared stuff. Some of their, their, their deepest, darkest, you know, hidden messages. And that, that bond was unbreakable. That's why they won, mm. you know. Mm. That's right. Absolutely. You'd imagine if a workplace was like that or a, classroom yeah. or a classroom at school was like that or a sporting organisation in general is like that. It's amazing, mate. Um, uh, what what can change? But that's the power of humanity in its essence. We're not meant to be separate and divided and all those sorts of things like 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 they're trying to do to us. Or the workplace quite often does that. That that sales manager or the the boss of your organisation that uh, didn't have any uh, interest in you being able to do something to support your employees. Uh, you know, if you can do something that's uh, coming from the heart, heart based leadership is is the way rather than. Know, the old-fashioned fear-based way and that's still going on unfortunately so i guess you and i having this conversation is going to be the catalyst to you know, maybe make people or help people rethink uh the way they do things Jeff, you know, how can people get hold of you if they um if they want to touch base and, and and find out a bit about the beautiful work that you're doing yeah so um for me it's just on linkedin so yeah. as part of my role for, for our business, um, but Jeff McKeon on LinkedIn, um, or our business is Neuro Capability, yeah, um, cool. and they'll be able to find us from there. Mate, that's that's awesome. We we could have talked a lot more. Trust me, I need to try and wrap this up in an hour. But we're going to have another one of these chats, I believe, mate. We'll uh, we'll definitely uh, get you on for another podcast and, and talk more about what you're doing and and how that can actually help uh, an individual that may be listening or a workplace that may be yeah, looking to do yeah, something. Yeah, because we, yeah. we didn't even get into the stuff that we actually teach and how to help people. So let's flag that for next time, Aaron. Absolutely. We have a chat. We'll actually give people. Um, and on that, um, our neuro capability, we've got a, a webinar coming up on the 21st of August. Okay. And the 21st of July, yeah. So people can, can look up your website and, and chase that up? Yep. All right. They can indeed. It's on there now. Absolute pleasure, brother. Thank you very, very much. It's been a been an Great awesome talk, conversation. Guys, thank you very much for joining in. Um, unbelievable journey, Jeff. Like how he's been through all that rough childhood, come out the other end, really vibrant, um, changed his ways, uh, changed his career, changed his life. So it just goes to show it doesn't have to end. At 51, he's making some significant uh opportunities for himself not only helping himself uh, to be happy but it's also helping a lot of others as well and he's right you know workplace well-being and what he's doing uh the psychological safety stuff's really important because uh it wasn't relevant uh but now it is more more so than ever so i really encourage you to touch base with him and um look at the work that he's doing if you'd like to, to contact me support at backmind.com.au appreciate your feedback looking forward to some awesome guests coming on soon thank you very much for your support Cheers.